Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. It's not that I hate comics, most of the young comics, because I don't want to be one of these old farts. Oh, these young comics today, because I used to get that a lot. Not me personally, but all these old guys, you know, Jen Murray, or, or I'd have lunch with Milton Berle, you know, the guys that my parents grew up with. But my girlfriend and I make a point. We just started doing this a couple of months ago. There's all these Netflix specials, and there's some comics. I go, why do they? I can't believe they have one special, let alone three or four. And we, we try to watch a few minutes of the specials. There's some good ones, but there's so many of them doing stuff that I've seen guys do. Not that they're stealing it. And it's just rehashed material. And again, not that these guys took it, but it's stuff that's all been done, you know? And I think a lot of people, they're running out of stuff. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. We have a great episode today with controversial comedian, actor, Bobby Slayton. I know you're going to like this episode a lot. It truly is groundbreaking and if you're easily offended, I suggest you don't listen. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram. And I'd love to get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you so much for all your support for the show. And I hope the beginning of your holidays are going very, very well. And without further ado, let me introduce this man. And part one is going to really, really entertain you. I know it will. The New York Daily News called Bobby Slayton armed and dangerous, and the Las Vegas Review Journal pointed out that Slayton's refusal to compromise his art has always made him worth a special trip. Bobby Slayton, often referred to as the pit bull of comedy, has been performing his own intense style of comedy for well over 30 years becoming one of the best-known, respected, and energetic comics working today. Audiences around the country and the world may recognize Bobby from his scene-stealing roles in movies such as Get Shorty, Ed Wood, as well as Dreamgirls and Bandits. 
He's been seen on dozens of television shows, including The Tonight Show, Politically Incorrect, Home Improvement, and Woody Allen's Amazon TV project, Crisis in Six Scenes. Bobby's many appearances on HBO have included Comic Relief and his own Showtime special, Born to be Bobby. He was a series regular on the HBO series Mind of the Married Man with Mike Binder and played Joey Bishop opposite Ray Liotta and Joe Montaigne in the critically acclaimed film The Rat Pack. Slayton's distinctive gravelly voice has often been heard on animated shows like Dr. Katz and Family Guy, as well as many popular radio shows and regular appearances on Sirius XM, including The Mother Load, The Howard Stern Show. Bobby recently completed two projects scheduled to release in 2020, including filming Woody Allen's latest movie and a guest appearance on the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Ladies and gentlemen, get a helmet. What an honor being here in his palatial mansion overlooking the Hollywood mountains. Please welcome my guest today, a man who always makes bold choices, and I have a feeling he's going to make a few today. Please welcome my guest, Bobby Slayton. Wow, pressure's on. By the way, it's not a big house, but it's a nice house. I'm sure your house is bigger. I'm sure your house is much bigger. You know, by the way... <laughs> my I, house I, is the size of your walk-in closet, probably. Well, you know what, though? But you have a view of the ocean. I have the <laughs> valley. Whatever. We both have nice houses. But I thank you for coming over to my house, because I don't like to leave here. It's a nice house. I got my pool. I got my gym. I got my kitchen. I, I never like to leave here. And I'm not agoraphobic, because I go down to the valley, and I go to the grocery store like five times a day. I don't mind leaving the house, but to come to see you, to do this podcast... And by the way, let me say something before we even get started. You've had this podcast for five years. <laughs> And you finally, yeah, he respects me so much. He loves me so much. And he, he, he's run out of people to put on. And he probably says this about every comic. You know, this guy's great. He's one of my favorites. And you've been doing this for years. And you've, you've run out of people to put on your show. So after five years, how many fucking comics and people have you had on that you finally, you probably even had Jeremy Piven on. You had everybody on. He's been on, right? Because he's your neighbor. And he does comedy now. You know, you know that's one reason I've got pilots. They go through every comic before I got a pilot. Then they give one to Corky, the retarded kid. They go, Let's go through all the mentally challenged people, and we get the people who can remember a line. And when we run out of them, we'll uh, we'll, we'll go to Bobby Slate. So eventually, everybody comes to me when they run out of people to go to. Are you supposed to say the R word right away in the first five minutes? Yeah, because, because your imaginary <laughs> listeners don't give a shit because nobody's watching this. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't, what, what am I going to get less work because they was retard? I'll use them all. I don't care anymore. It doesn't make any difference to me about what's politically correct, what you can say, what you can't say. You know, you can't even make fun of the chinks anymore because if I want to get on SNL by the time I'm 70, no Asian jokes. I'm fucked. Okay, there we go. Retard and chick. Okay, I can do the C word or the N word, but we'll save that for the big crescendo finale i don't like to do the n-word c-word until the end you always act like you're not working things aren't going well but i'm in this house okay it's a very nice house it's not because but you gotta remember when i got this house okay first of all i don't work a lot anymore which i mean i like to work i want to work but there's just not a lot of work out there wait stop but, there what do you mean you don't work a lot 
Well, you know what? I used to work when I started doing stand-up, okay? When you had the comedy club in Boston, you know, in those days. That was back when the 70s, right? Okay, the, 70s and 80s. <laughs> not that long ago. But what, 80s? In the 80s. In the 80s, in, well, 80s in the Boston, the 90s in, well, I started in the, I started the 70s. Okay, so when comedy was big, you know, we had the big comedy boom in the 80s, whenever it was. So I was working a lot because there were two or three comedy clubs in every city. And eventually a lot of people went out of business or they moved on to, you know, bigger and greener pastures, whatever it was. So, and I was playing a lot of clubs. There was a lot of stuff for comics to do. What's happening now with guys my age, because I'm in my 60s, if you're not playing the Bill Burr, Lewis Black theaters and selling out, which I can't do, the comedy clubs, people my age and your age, and I'm putting this in the same category, are not really going to comedy clubs anymore. I mean, I, look, I don't really like to go out much. I'll go see the Rolling Stones and even that, my heroes, but even that's a fucking schlep and a pain in the ass to go to the Rose Bowl. With Netflix and, and Prime Video and, you know, and Blu-ray and, and, and food delivery, there's no reason to go anywhere. A lot of people don't want to go anywhere. You can't drink and drive anymore. You got teenagers and drunks and bachelorettes and assholes in the comedy clubs. So there's all these young Netflix comics and douchebag comics and YouTube comics. So not a lot of work for a guy like me. Define a douchebag comic. Most comics. <laughs> no, 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 I like, there's a lot of comics I really love, but you know. Tell me off the top of your head, three comedians immediately that are alive that you have the utmost respect for. Well, Bill Burr. Uh, Bill Maher. Is there another Bill? Um, <laughs> um, oh, my God. Well, Robert Klein. I mean, there's a lot of them. Uh, Sarah Silverman. I mean, there's, there's dozens off the... I mean, but but I think of the comics that are doing great work now. And then, then, you know, the guys that I started out with that either I opened for or opened for me. We started out together. You know, the Jake Johansons, the Dom Herrera, and Lenny Clark from Boston. And there's a lot of guys. But you know what it is? It's not that I hate comics most of the young comics because I don't want to be one of these old farts. Oh, these young comics today because I used to get that a lot. Not me personally, but all these old guys, you know, Jen Murray or or I'd have lunch with Milton Berle, you know, the guys that my parents grew up with and really cool guys and, you know, they, they, they embodied the history of comedy. Buddy Hackett and, and they would, they would picture about I, the young comics I worked with Buddy today. Hackett on the last show he ever did. So. What's that, you worked with him? Yeah, I got a, he was at my wedding. He was, he, was a lunatic, he was a lunatic, but I loved him. But, but what I'm saying is a lot of those guys and not, not buddy in particular, but they'd always bitch about it. The young comics today and they have to use four letter words and they don't know what work is. And I don't want to be one of those guys. But my girlfriend and I make a point. We just started doing this a couple of months ago. There's all these Netflix specials and there's some comics. I go, why do they? I can't believe they have one special, let alone three or four. And we, we try to watch a few minutes of the specials. But I'm not going to mention any comics in particular because I don't really want to sit and badmouth them. You know, they're funny. There's some good ones, but there's so many of them doing stuff that I've seen guys do. Not that they're stealing it, but there was one comic, and I guess he has two or three specials. I forgot his name, but he's playing a packed theater. You know, you ever smoking dope and your parents come in and you really want a Twinkie? And I'm going, what is this, Cheech and Chong from 1970? You know, and it's just rehashed material. And again, not that these guys took it, but it's stuff that's all been done, you know? And I think a lot of people, they're running out of stuff. And then, there was one comic, and I don't want to mention her name, but just going on and on and on and on and on and on about blowjobs and on and on and on. Okay, 15, 20 minutes. On. Anyway, I watch these comics, and I'm not saying they're not good, but their younger audience are the ones that go to comedy clubs now. So that's the point I was trying to make, that they're selling out the clubs. And then there's YouTube sensations who have 15 minutes 
Who I, I, the improvs have told me a lot of clubs have told me that they that they only have 15 minutes. They pack the place. You do an afternoon show with 15 year olds. So the comedy clubs, you know. And I'm a guy that used to love to go to the movies. I see no reason to go to the movies anymore unless you're going to go see some big Star Wars epic or something like The Joker where you need to see it on a big screen. I have a giant screen in that room that's 80 inches in front of my bed so I can stop it and pee. I can night out and go pee again. I get up and get some popcorn. I can pee. I didn't hear that. I can rewind it. You can't do that in the movie theater. So I think there's a lot of people like me not as cool as me, but like me. Do you want to go to the movies anymore? I like to go to the movies when a regular movie is playing on the IMAX screen. No, that's another day. Okay. But I want to talk to you about the, the, you talked about the smart and what they're doing and what topics, the blowjob thing. I just was having a conversation with a comedian. He did a routine on porn stars and sleeping with a porn star and it was a story and it ended but it was a more ordinary way to tell a story about porn stars and I used the example I said if you're gonna do a theme that's common why not make it smarter and I gave him this example and you tell me if you agree with me I remember long ago I saw Jeffrey Ross do this joke he said I asked this girl out on a date she was a porn star she said, yes. She said, listen, I'm working on Tuesday and Wednesday. How about if I see you Thursday? And he said, how about Tuesday? And so that's a smarter way to do a joke about porn stars. Right. Right. Now, I obviously didn't deliver it as well as Jeff Ross, but the point I'm trying to make is that that's what you do. You can always take something, even if it's something that's been a subject matter that's right. been done, you make it smart. Well, I try to. I, it doesn't always work because certainly I've taken the... I've taken a lot of cheap shots in the easy way. But, but you know, for example, okay, I guess every comic over 50, I was playing some club and I had a joke about getting a prostate examination. I know a lot of comics did that once they hit their 50s. And the club owner had said to me, you know, if I see one more comic doing a joke about, hey, I just turned 50, I had to go get the finger on my butt. And, and every, you know, but he goes, the one you had was really good. But um, um, what I was going to say was, you know, a lot of people don't know this that are, that are listening now because they don't know, you know, how great of a comic Jay Leno was and is. Okay. Fantastic. And the closest he came to saying a dirty word was he had a joke where there's a guy in an alley with a heart on and an axe. Right. That was his dirtiest joke. Right. That was his dirtiest I joke. forget the joke, but right. you know what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, I know. It's a great joke. What do you say? You're supposed to talk to your assailant. You're in the alleyway. <laughs> what do you say to a guy, naked guy with a heart on an axe? Are you folks from the area? You know, you know. But the thing about Jay, and now a lot of people don't know this, because when you watched his show, you know, he was a joke machine when he did his monologue. And, and but, but, in the old days, if every comic had a joke about uh, chicken McNuggets or McDonald's, about airplane bathrooms, how small they are, about prostate, whatever, and Jay was the guy, like you said with Whitney, had the joke. Uh, you know, you want the McDonald's joke? Jay had, you know, oh, 7 Eleven, they're so expensive. They, and there's uh, Arabs working there, or Indians. And Jay would always have the, his joke would always be the best joke you can think of, the difference between cats and dogs or whatever. Um, Leno would always, he was a marksman. And he might not have had, and I've always stuck up for him, he might not have had the incisive rebellious, rebellious of George Carlin. He might not have had, you know, the, 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 you know what, what Richard Pryor did with his history of pain and angst and drugs. But Jay was a joke, a joke machine. But a great, but it wasn't like he was rattling them off like an old Catskills comic. They were they were right on target. And you, you, that's one of the things that's so hard about if you look at how comedians are judged throughout history and time. The comedians that were clean, who were marksmen, are never ranked way up there in the top 
10. You know, there's one person I think that is ranked in the top 10 that was a marksman. Don Rickles. Well, no. he was dirty. Don Rickles wasn't dirty at all. Come I've, on. I've seen him a million times. Don, I don't think Don ever used a four-letter word on stage. Have you ever seen him? Yeah, well, but it was all innuendos. Well, that's different. That's innuendos totally different because everybody, the Marx Brothers had innuendos. And, you know, there's these old blues songs with, you know, okay. you know uh, Santa Claus come down the chimney. Okay. I was going to say Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, Dangerfield. Yes. Oh, Dangerfield. A joke every five seconds. Okay, yes. Um, Imagine that. This is what I wanted to ask you. And I don't want you to lose your place because you're such a student of the game. You're a guy who is a tremendous amount of laughs per minute, but they're within storytelling. There isn't the thing where you say, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Rodney, every five seconds, there's a joke. Twelve right. jokes per minute. Right. Is it harder to write twelve jokes a minute than to write the stories that have the laughs? Within? Well, I think the big difference is, and I think it's different for every comic, so I, I'm not really a student on this. I do what I do, and I, I don't want to compare it to other people or, or, or you know analyze other comics but I think the difference is with Rodney okay he was a joke machine but Rodney didn't write all the jokes he bought a lot of jokes a lot of people wrote the jokes for him and Henny Youngman who was also like that you know a little bit slower a little bit different a little bit more Borscht Belted Cat skills when he was alive but you know he didn't write all his jokes and a lot of the jokes were old jokes and he would tell joke jokes you know so what um, you're saying is there's a guy like when I hear a joke like uh, my parents hated me as a child my bath toys were a toaster and a radio right there's somebody out there in Sherman Oaks that wrote that joke. Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure Rodney wrote a lot of them, but I know that he would pay people to write jokes. There's nothing wrong with that. I've had people write some stuff for me. And I mean, God knows that, uh, you know, I mean, all people come up to uh, other comics. They got a great bit for you. I can't do it. And generally, they, you think I can do that? It's, way, it's so dirty and so disgusting and so and racist and sexist. They think, well, if I can't do it, Slate will do it. And that's not what I built my act upon. I, um, I, and people always say, why don't you change your act now with the political correctness? and the Me Too movement, you know, and, and I know a lot of comics have reinvented themselves with one-man shows and they become political analysts and some guys went on cruise ships, became hypnotists and some guys, you know, became motivational speakers. I'm sure I can make money doing that stuff, but I worked 40 years doing what I do and I'm still learning what I do and I still have nights where I forget my stuff and I forgot this joke and that joke didn't work as well as I should I told that wrong I think what I do what a lot of comics do if you're a good comic it's like a guitar player you're never I mean B.B. King never thought he was a great guitar player and he did Eric Clapton they, oh this guy these people are so much better I think these guys are constantly working on or trying to improve themselves you know or there's always somebody better than you uh, at any given moment I have this philosophy, and you don't have it, but I have it. In anything I work on, it doesn't matter if it's a television show, a movie, if a person stand up, whatever it is. When they ask me, what do you think of this? Should I, I really want to do this, but I'm unsure if I should do this thing. It could be a scene in a movie. It could be whatever. Right. And I always say, if there's a one in a thousand shot that that's going to come back and hurt you, then don't do it. If that were out of the movie or out of the television show or out of the hour, are people not going to come see you? Are they ever going to know? So when I saw you in San Francisco and I was Which so was excited. Very, okay, very bizarre show. I was so on, excited. Yeah. That, that, was, I, that was a really odd no, show. No, but I was really excited because when you were in town, I, I had to come see you. And I don't go out to the comedy clubs that often anymore. And I hadn't been to the punchline in San Francisco 
in a long, long right. time. And for those of you who haven't been, it's a very historic place. I my remember club in much. the beginning of my career, I used to bring Dave Chappelle up there when he was 18. He to still do... plays there all the time. Yeah, it's what... Chappelle's still to this day, always go to the punchline, at least a few times a year to work out stuff all, <laughs> it, all the it, time. And it's just a place where that's home for him and it's home for you. And if I were to transcribe your routine that night, okay, just bear with me. And I took 100% of the content. I'd say I could pull out 2%, maybe 5%. And you're never going to have to worry that he's going to say, oh, you see what he's doing? He's really offensive, what he said here. And no one would be any wiser. They'd still have a great time. Right. But you tend to love to yes. go Insight. with the extra five. You're an accelerator. You're like lighter. You're like lighter fuel on a wildfire. Well, some of my favorite and, comics were like that. George Carlin was like that. Bill Burr, who I think is one of probably, if not the best comic working today, top two or three. You know, he does that. Um, Joe Rogan has done that. I think I haven't seen him for a while. His last special, I, I think that you like to push a few buttons. And I think 99% of the people, or not, let's say 95% of the people, now you gotta be working percentages here, love that when you, when you, you know, if you're gonna walk the line, you gotta step over the line. So if you're not walk, stepping over the line and you're working without a net, I think that night you saw me, was that the night that the Asian woman was right up front? Yes. Okay. I was get not always, but once a week, a little you bit You called of her both C words. Yeah, okay. <laughs> she was, okay. <laughs> I was doing that show that but this night. is what's incredible this is what I don't understand so she's with her boyfriend they're holding hands and before the show started they're canoodling or whatever that word is that's a normal word and then you're saying these things to this woman that are just bone crushing well she was a cunt and, and he, <laughs> okay now we got the same word so we got retard cunt oh chick okay so i got and three she, out of the and way. he's just sitting there like not doing anything like not protecting okay. this woman not what that doesn't a, happen a lot okay but what i like to do like i said is work off the cuff a little and and and, and talk to the audience and you know a lot of a lot of, and i'm necessarily have to be a good comic to do it some comics don't do that you know jerry seinfeld doesn't do that he's one of the greatest comics ever but uh, every comic's different every comic has their way of working Okay, could I get up on that stage and do an hour and cut out the four-letter words and, and, and do the material that I know is going to kill? Yes, but what's the point? You know, I'd rather do f 45 minutes, 50 minutes I know is going to kill, maybe even less. Talk to the audience. Sometimes there's something to work with. Sometimes there isn't. But you never know what you're going to get. And people understand and appreciate, I think, what you're doing up there when they know you're making this stuff up as you go along. Okay? Um, you know, so I like to do it, and it keeps it fresh for me if, you, if you're doing stuff like that, you know? It's almost like a band jamming or something, you know? You could do your greatest hits, or you could try a few new songs, a couple of oldies, throw something in. Springsteen does it, the Stones do it. I mean, you know, they have their standard stuff. But the point was that, first of all, you come to a comedy club. I don't think those two people were there to see me. Okay. All right, I, let's pretend they weren't there to I see you. I don't think they were there to okay. see me. She's being rude. Cunt. And there's a hundred ways of handling things. Right. 
and you handle it by calling her all those names and whatever and as opposed to just having a thing with the bouncer look if anybody does heckle could you go over and could you get them out of here well they so did we... go over there but see i don't like that because i did incite them a little bit okay and so, that's something you did too which shocked me told the, it was told the bouncer to go away in a way you did something that really crushed the will of the bouncer because the bouncer loves you and is respects you right. and is trying to help you I know. And then you say, no, go away. And well, I didn't like, say it like that. No, but okay, okay, first of all, I don't remember that exact night, but usually when they come over, um, you know, I always tell a, a lot of times at the clubs now, and they never used to have this in the old days, the bouncer, the security, whatever, the doorman would come over to me, hey, if you have any hecklers, how do you want us to handle it? Sometimes they'll ask me, because every comic has a different thing. There's some comics, as soon as somebody else comes out, throw them out. You know what? People are trying to have a good time. They're there to have a good time. And a lot of times people think when you're talking to somebody, hey, you two married? How long have you been married? Uh, you know, do you still have a great sex life? Where do you go on your honeymoon? Now, sometimes when people hear that, they think, oh, we're all part of the show now. We're, we can yell stuff out. They don't know. They're not trained in the proper way because they don't do this in theater or the movies. One of my, unless you're black, then you yell at the moon. Oh, that's Jesus. one of my oldest bits. One of the moments I remember so vividly about this show, which probably you wouldn't want me to remember. It was one of those moments that's so rare and you're going at these two guys and you know you're gay you know what's it like to go back does it hurt when you do it's just every that single was the same show obviously yeah so every single thing you could imagine throwing out at these two guys and they're just sitting there watching they're smiling they're every time you went at them nothing and then at the very end of the show, you said something like, so how long you guys been really going at? When did the relationship really start when you guys started really going at it? And the, the, there was a pause and the younger guy says, this is my father. This is my dad. And the crowd, it was like a, it was like a three minute applause break. And you rarely have it where an audience member says something. And it, I think what I said to, to the man was, you're fucking your son. <laughs> I think, oh, that sounds like something. I should have said you know what that again that show you were at was very rare usually when I talk to two guys we two are gay right they usually crack it up and either they are really gay and I make the clear or they're not even close to being gay and they find it funny sometimes guys are who do we look like a couple of faggots and they get really mad okay, well, you know you relax that doesn't happen very often the gay thing usually works and the thing with the Asian woman with her pussy whip milk toast boyfriend and I mean that in the nicest way um, to have both those things happening in one show that you were at because all the other shows as far as I'm concerned they all went great and everything went yeah, smooth yeah I walked in and you were like oh what are you doing at this show yeah yeah that was not the show to see but that was an extreme example of people really getting upset you know and, and the funny thing is usually when people do get upset and it doesn't happen that much they walk out of the show they don't sit there and take it for the whole performance. But both of them, I, I think I think the, the Asian woman and boyfriend finally left. I think they walked out, I don't remember really. I don't think they did. Well, she was an idiot. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. 
Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Anyway, so tell me what's the answer. So you say to yourself, you say to me, I'm not working as much as I want to work. I'm only working like once a month. I haven't done an improv for a week since Falco had a hit on the radio. I can't remember when it was. And But you're in this, I mean, I wish that everybody could see what I see. It's an incredible, incredible house. It's nicely decorated. It's not a big house. But you're, I'm overlooking the mountains through a pool and a deck, okay. and, it, and it's just insane. And then you got the the memorabilia and you and all this great artwork well, and everything. I've lived here for 17 years, Barry. I mean, I'm sure your house is just is nice, if not nicer. You're looking over the beach. I'm sure it's Walk-in closet. I'm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, I'm sure it's great. Um, and you live by yourself like I do, right? You don't need a lot of room. My, I was here with my wife and I raised my daughter here. So now that they're both gone, I can, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get rid of it. But anyway, what I was going to say was, um, I do work. I, I don't really want to work that much anymore. I mean, some of you listeners will be going, well, I can see why he's not working with the N word and the C word. And the, you know, uh, I don't really want to play the comedy clubs much anymore because the audiences are getting younger. And I know if dumber, but you know, they sit there sometimes texting their friends. I mean, you know, the typical just like they do in the movie theaters, you know, people coming in late and texting their friends and drunken bachelorettes. I'm too old to deal with it. And I like doing one show a night. The comedy clubs, you know, you know the deal. But the you comedy go, club is the only place of employment left in the world where the comedian is safe. Well, not necessarily because, um, you know, it's getting a little bit tougher. But yes, no, no, I appreciate comedy clubs and I like working them. I mean, last month I played the Denver Comedy Works, which is a great club. Incredible, Let me give them a shout out. Incredible great club. club. I think and there was one man. table that got upset one night. These women who I went after and they deserved it again. And Wendy, who runs love her. the place, she's amazing. But normally, I would say that it's challenging for her booking somebody like you, not because of the audience, but because staff gets offended. People get offended right. when the, you hear something right. that they don't think is proper and they say, to, and, and your staff says, do you listen? He's killing it. He's drawing a lot of people, but do we have to have this guy in here? You doing know what this? though? I think most of the staffs that do all these comedy clubs, cause I'm so nice to them. I don't try to hit up on them. I tip them. And they all love me. I mean, there might be one uptight waiter, but there's, you know, she has a couple of gay waiters who work there. Everybody, one of the, the people, one of the smartest things you just said, which I impress upon comedians from the very beginning, at the end of the week or the end of the night, if the waiters or waitresses don't stay the whole week or whatever, every night you do, you buy pizzas for them, you tip yeah. them. And every night you do that, and they will talk to you, uh, up your. I don't do. I don't tip the whole staff like I used to because I don't make money like I used to. But if if you bring me a drink on stage or whatever, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I take care of the bartenders. You know, I mean, in the old days, the '80s, everybody's doing coke and you having sex with the waitresses. I mean, I went through that little phase, but it was a, you know, a mutual. Didn't thing. you worry when you were having sex with the waitresses, and the next week the next guy was having sex with the waitresses? Oh, who cares? I would. I didn't care. But um, <laughs> um, I, I didn't really think about it. it wasn't I didn't do it that much? But I wasn't Gene Simmons or you know. Mick Jagger wasn't nailing everybody, but then I got married, I settled down, and that was the end of that. But uh, the point I was making was that, um, you know, there are still a few clubs like the Comedy Works and uh, Comedy to Carlson up in Rochester, New York, the Punchline in San Francisco. There's a few clubs that I still love working, but most of them, you know, the Funny Bone people don't use me anymore. Um, 
they don't pay very much money. They don't want us old white guys. You know, a lot of the clubs are urban now. A lot of them have well, the younger comics. There's so many comedians. They don't need me. I always kill all the clubs like me. I don't have a problem with that, but it'll sell a lot of tickets. And so, you know, it's a business. You were in the business. You know, you got to decide. It's not like the old days when Enrico Banducci run, ran the Hungry Eye and he put Lady Bruce on stage and Mort Saul. They wouldn't sell a lot of tickets, but, you know, he... They love the artists, you know, with more about the art. A lot of people did the coffee shops in the village back in the 60s. But now it's a business. The rents are high. You got insurance. You got people to pay. So Bobby Slayton doesn't draw. We love Bobby. They throw me a bone once in a while. Or they've cut my salary down. And they're having young comics that pack the place. I get it. It's nothing to do with me. What's and I don't the- want to work anymore. I don't want to travel anymore. I hate going to the airport. I hate dealing with it. I have close to 10 million miles on my ass that's a lot of miles okay that's a lot of miles and and you know a lot of people do that for business i'm 64 years old i don't want to travel anymore and the thing with comedy clubs you know you go in a day early like zany's another one of my favorite places in chicago i go back 40 years with them and it's great but you know they want you coming in a day early which i like to do because of the weather and then the next morning you have morning radio you know and then you have tv in the afternoon you got to sit in traffic and then you have to work at night so it's not like you just go in it's, it's a lot of work to do a show at night sometimes on a thursday get up in the morning sit in traffic do some lame-ass radio show which i'm really good at like this you're not going to get more lame than this and i'm looking like i'm out. i'm pretending to have a great time i'm sitting here going when, when is this shit over when is this big nose fucking to leave me alone already and go home so i can sit in my beautiful backyard and read my book and have a glass of Chardonnay. But I don't say that on the air. I say it because your marriage listeners don't give a shit. But what I'm saying, Barry, I love this man. <laughs> See, it's like a roast. You say horrible things and you, we roast the ones we love, like Jeff Ross would say. But anyway, no, I'm getting too old. I don't really want to leave my house. And so these old projects, you see me working on these old art projects, whether I make money out of them or not, you know, next year I'll probably do a little show. I still have that creative urge to do stuff. I don't really like acting. You know, I don't go to read for stuff anymore. I can't. You don't do like it. acting. You're. I would say, and this is really going to shock you. Yeah, it's going to. Everything you've said be, so far shocked me. Because I think you're one of the greatest comedians I've ever seen. I think you're a better actor than you are a comedian. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. Okay, let me explain something to you about my acting. If you I, watch, I think your acting doing, is tremendous. I'm just playing me. I am not doing anything. That it's nothing. I, okay, De Niro plays De Niro. Okay, no. But, and, and, and Joe Pesci plays Joe Pesci. I'm certainly not anywhere at that level. But I, every show I've ever done, it's been a small part of playing a big mouth, fast talking, big nosed Jew. I'm like you, but a little smarter and a little better looking and I talk faster. But <laughs> I, I'm would, like, I would agree with that. <laughs> um, no, but I basically, no, but no, I'm not. But like I mean, that. there isn't one role that you've done that anyone can watch it and say, oh, that was mediocre. I mean, um, you're fucking great well, you, in everything. Okay, all right, all right. You tell everything. me something you see me done that I was so good at. I was in Dreamgirls. I played a fast-talking New York comic. I was on Mind of the Married Man, the Mike Binder Mind of the Married Man was great. I was great. a fast-talking guy from Chicago. You, Doug Williams, and uh, Mike Binder. Yeah, and, it, uh, it was a great show. It was on, and with the funny thing about that show... Um, I mean, you were fucking great in that I, show. I played, my character's name was Slayton. My name was Slayton. I played me on the show. I'm doing what I'm doing. We sit at a bar. I go, how about those three students? I'm doing exactly what I'm doing now with you. And so if you want to call that acting, fine. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. I played Joey Bishop at the Rat Pack with Ray Liotta and Don Cheadle and, and Joe Montaigne. I got and you are the great. farthest thing from Joey Bishop that exists. But I, I play, I thought, I thought I played him fine, no? 
Yes, but you just said you've always play you. Okay, because all I had to do, okay, yeah, but all I had to do with that was cut my hair so I look like, put on a 50s, 60s, a, a shark skin suit, and talk a little bit like Jackie Mason, like Joey Bishop. All I did was like that. <laughs> hey, hey, Dean, hey, Sammy, what do you say we go to the club? Hey, that's all I did, okay? It was like, you know, it wasn't that big of a stretch. I mean, I appreciate it. Um, and then I did a couple of things for Woody Allen in the last few years. You're working with geniuses. I'm working with geniuses. Yes, I am. Why would geniuses hire you if they didn't think you were a great actor? Uh, because Quirky, the retarded kid, couldn't do it. I'm sure they called him first. And uh, he's in a home now. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. You're referring called. to the, the show Life Goes On, I presume. Yeah, yeah, Life Goes On. I know you can't use the word retarded, but it's, it's funny. To your audience, if, if they've listened this far, if they listen to your podcast, I don't think the word retarded is going to bother them. Um, but um, no, no, no. I, what I'm saying is that I'm going I, down because of this podcast. You know, you'll cut it out because you're a big pussy. I'm not going to cut your horrifying words out because I want people to know you for who you are. Right. And the thing is, though, I am Barry Katz and I don't endorse this okay. podcast. Right. Well, OK. What? OK. The funny thing is, when I go on stage, people say to me all the time, you know, not all the time, but people say, you know, can you go on stage and still do these things with the Me Too movement and making fun of women and, you know, Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein and blah, blah, blah. I go, yeah, I can still do it, you know, because it's a comedy club. And like you said, it's one of the last bastions where comics can speak and you know the first amendment and you can talk and, and the club has every right not to bring you back or, I don't think a club has ever said to me maybe I, I can't remember when a club has ever come up I mean you have to do that joke with the uh, except for Mike Lacey at the comedy magic club you know who I, I play he goes I, mean, I wish you would use the C word or the N word I don't use it that often it was part of a joke by the way you're the only person who's dirty that he uses okay yeah I, well I haven't played there for a year or two but um you know, the first time I played there in years, it's one of the greatest clubs in the country, if not the greatest. But when I was a young comic, I played there, and um, there was this kid that managed the club, and Mike Lacey was out of town. And there was a whole lineup of comics, and there was a woman in the audience heckling. And I played there, and Mike, I would always say to Mike, we're going back to the 80s now. I'd say, Mike, can I do this? Can I say that? Uh, can I say shit twice? And you know, he didn't want you to say fuck, but you know, if you used it once, it was like, you know, it, 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 I, I was cutting edge back then. So one night I remember Paul Reiser going on, and, and, and I know all these great comics. A woman wouldn't stop heckling. And I went on, and I said, can somebody shut this fucking cunt up already? And she ran out crying. It turns out her father was like the mayor of Hermosa Beach and called up the club. And Mike Lacey thought that I was going out of my way because I knew he was out of town to get really dirty. And I explained, I said to the manager at the time, explain to Mike what happened. And I think the manager was afraid to say anything. I was banned from the club for a couple of years. Years later, a big, Bill Engvall, Mackie and Jamie, my daughter went to the same school, a little private school in Marina Del Rey as their children. And they, every year they did a big benefit for the school at the Comedy Magic Club. And I hadn't played there in years. And I think Mackie Jamie or Bill Engvall said to me, do um, you want to do it? And I said, I'd like to emcee the show. You know, and I'm going to work really clean because, you know, not only is my wife going to be there, which didn't matter, but the principal of the school, the teachers, the other parents and who play with my daughter, they have play groups. So I went up and I introduced each one of them. And I, I got a little dirty, not too much, but halfway through, I, I, I just went for it. 
and I went after the teachers, I went after the principal. I just, I don't remember what I did, it was a long time ago. And Mike Lace says to me, you're like George Carlin, I, I would have let you work dirty if I knew how brilliant you were, and it went on and on and on. I said, thank you. So he gives me a night, he finally gives me a weekend to play the Comedy Magic Club. This is after like 10, 20 years or whatever. And his cousin Dana, who was running the place, was just as crazy as he was. So all over the outside, Bobby Slayton is very offensive. Not, not, <laughs> the improvs have done this. Come, you, know, Bobby, you might find Bobby Slayton offensive if you're upset by controversial language. You might want to reconsider attending and come to another show. They, they put in a way that, but Mike had signs on But that every, makes you want to come more. Exactly. On every table. Bobby Slayton's offensive. He's dirty. He's filthy. <laughs> They're already in the club, Mike. I don't, think you need, I don't think you need it. It's on the box office. It's posted for blocks down the street. <laughs> He's putting flyers on cars. I'm exaggerating a little, embellishing, if you will. <laughs> anyway, and so I did my act, and there was never a problem. Never a problem. And I played there for years, and I still play there, although I haven't played there in a year or so. Uh, but um, so there was never a problem. And Mike, like you said, I was one of the few guys he let work dirty. But he would come up to me once in a while. He was the only guy. But, I mean, you know, just, but anytime I used the C word or the N word, it was in the, in the course of a really great joke. Because... Being a white guy, I'm not going to use those words on stage. Well, the C word maybe, but not the N word. But I had a great joke. And um, can I tell you what? Can I, you know what one of the jokes I did? And it's on the end of my first CD, Raging Bully. And I, I do my show. <laughs> and I, I, it's a comedy magic club. I tape my first CD at the comedy magic club. And the show is going great. And I've done this joke before. I said, I don't see any black people here. And I got to make sure there are no black people in the audience before I would do this joke. I go, you know, it's such a white neighborhood, it's such a white area, the beach, a lot of wasps, a lot of Republicans, no black people. So these two niggers walk in a bar. And the first nigger, everybody starts to laugh. I go, look at you people, look what you're laughing at. So I do my CD, and the guy edits it, and he ends with that joke. I don't see any black people. These two niggers walk in a bar, big laugh, fades out. And I said to my manager at the time, or somebody I was working with, you think I should really leave that joke in? Because if people are sitting listening to your CD for an hour with your gay jokes and your racial jokes and your women jokes and your blowjob jokes, your anal sex jokes, by the time they get to two niggas walking a bar, I think you'll be okay. So I left it in. I never heard anything about it. But, you know, to use a word like that for a white guy, you got to have a really good joke. And I'm sure you've done the joke and there's black people in the audience when you've done the joke. I mean, by mistake, oh my God, I see the black people, they're, they're fine. You know, uh, then they're fine with it. Do you think that if Jay-Z was pulling up in his car at a red light and there were some white teenagers singing along to his song and word for word and using the N-word, do you think he'd be upset or be, he'd be proud? I, I don't know. But if they're singing along, <laughs> it's a good question. Tell me three comedians in your situation that are as good as you or close to as good as you or but that are a bit better than me or, that are experiencing the squeeze that you're experiencing and when you name them an idea that i thought would be great is if the four of you get together and do a tour well okay first of all i'd rather not mention them because i don't want to i don't want to speak for them and I don't want them calling me that they're going to listen to this or see this. But I don't really want them calling me going, I'm working a lot, you know, and I'm doing movies. And Got it. I'd rather, but you know what? There are a few other comics. And people said you should do a little tour. But the problem is if you're not really selling out comedy clubs to sell out a theater, you probably, by the time you pay for the theater and you rent the theater and you go to the town and you pay for your airfare, you get the hotel, you pay for a publicist, you know, it wouldn't be worth it. 
Well, it's worth it because it's a commercial for how great you are and it brings things to the future. Uh, people have tried to do that and it really, it, it worked okay. It didn't make a lot of money doing it, you know. When's the last time there was something you had the opportunity to have your stand-up on television? Been a while. And, and you know, I, um, here's another thing, okay, is that people go, why don't you do a Netflix special? Well, first of all, they're not calling me to do it. I don't know if I have a full hour to to do a Netflix special. The problem with a Netflix special is you, you have nine hours. What are you talking about? Well I, well, I did it, you know, in the last five years when I did my Showtime special, which was five years already. Um, a lot of my material is working off the crowd. A lot of my material, it's, it's a little bit of old material that goes into the new stuff. A lot of my new stuff is based on some of the old stuff. So, um, and to be honest with you, even if I did an hour, you got to play it, do it in a big theater and people have to come see you. I can't sell... I can't get a big theater where enough people would come see me. Well, okay. you don't have to sell. You bring people in. You have audience coordinators. Yeah, but and... here's the other problem. Here's the other problem. I don't want, if I do a whole hour, then you go back out again. And I don't know how many comics do this. Any comics, the good ones or the bad ones. And then people want new material. I'm, I'm pretty much burnt out of writing new stuff. I'm tired of this. Well, I think comedians have this thing where they don't do, after they do something on television, they don't do it again. But I think that if you're a certain kind of comic, I think you can do the material on the special. Well, you can a little bit, but the problem is, look, all I remember is... I said a certain kind of comic, very few, but they Okay, can. all I remember is the one time I did Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and a couple of times I did the Arsenio Hall show back in the, what was it, the 90s, I would do my five, six minutes, whatever you did at the time, and I would go on, and I remember playing a club the next day or the next week, and people come up to me after, oh, I saw you on Arsenio the other night. You're doing the same stuff. I go, I did five minutes on Arsenio. I just did an hour. And I would get it even then, okay? So I don't think you could do an hour. And to be honest with you, I'm just tired of it. I don't really give a shit about a Netflix special. I don't really want to go and play the clubs anymore. All right, so you get a chance, you're 64, to put your bucket list together of things you want to do now in the business right. from 63 until however long you live to 100 or whatever. What's on the list? Okay, what I would like, to, well, I've done everything. Uh, I certainly don't want to do Broadway. As a matter of fact, I had a chance to read for, and I wouldn't have taken the job. I had a chance to read for the new Tootsie musical on Broadway. It was great, but Sydney, it was a Sydney Pollock, his, and the director who played his, his agent. What do you mean you can't play a tomato? You know, the whole, okay, a couple of great scenes. And I'm thinking, um, I was going to go to New York to do it. They said, well, you don't have to come to New York. You can put on tape. I guess they wanted to see me, or my agent said they wanted to see me. My, my manager used to do that a lot. They called, they got to see, I don't want to read for this. I don't, want, I, don't need, I don't want to read for this dumb sitcom. But they asked me specifically. And then I'd go in, they'd say, who are you? What's your name? Oh, Bobby? Is Bobby Slate? They had no idea who I was. And I said to my manager, you're so full of shit. Anyway, so I went, I put it on tape, and then I realized I don't want to go to Broadway. I don't want to have to go on six nights a week, two shows on the weekends. Oh, it sounds like a nightmare to me. And it doesn't pay a lot of money. So yes, my bucket list things to do. That's from from to 64 do. to the end of your life in the business, what's on your bucket list? Well, I certainly don't want to do a podcast. Forget what you certainly don't want to do. Tell me what, what I well, tell, I'm, trying, I'm, I'm trying to get to what I want to do by crossing things off. Stop I don't want to shitting do. on me. Go with what you want to do. Well, you know, I'd like to do. I'm surprised he hasn't had me on, but it's okay because I'm not famous. <laughs> and, you know what I'd like to do? Comedians in cars having coffee. Okay, so that's one on the list. And, and I know Jerry's going to get to me. If, if, once he calls, Cor once, once Corky gets the show, <laughs> from life goes on, I go, I'm next. <laughs>
All right. Comedians and cars. Okay, what now else? If I, you know what? If I Now if I get the show, I'm going to go, great. Jerry was watching this dumb podcast. I made fun of Barry the whole time. <laughs> and for some reason, George Shapiro or Jerry saw this. Which is I've had George Shapiro on. Of course. I, um, had I Judd, told you he's run out of people. He's having everybody on. I had Judd Apatow on because he wrote George Shapiro a note saying that he listened to the podcast. And so I love Judd. You know, I saw Judd, who I love, who was one of my opening acts back in the uh, 80s, opened for me a few times at Irvine Improv. And um, I saw him do, you know, when he was doing that show with, uh, with Pete, uh, what was that show? Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes. They were doing some radio show in Philly and I was on right after them and Pete was there and Artie was there and Judd was there I hadn't seen all of them in a long time and we were talking and we took some pictures and then Judd goes on Twitter and goes oh I just did a radio show with Bobby Slayton if there's a funnier guy out there you tell me who he is so great maybe Judd will put me in something no no but when he uses Corky then I know I keep an eye for the Judd Apatow you know he's gonna get to me eventually but anyway there's all comedians and cars what else is on the list what else on the list? I've already worked for Woody Allen. I mean, it would have been one of one Are of you telling dreams. me that you don't want to do anything else the rest of your life well, in the I, business? I like to act if it's a small part. You know. So you want to continue acting in small parts, but you're doing that. Small parts. And you're working with Woody Allen. I well, mean, you know what's funny? Some, for the second time. Oh, I know what was. I'll for the what, second time. I'll tell you. Third time. <laughs> um, I tell you, I'll tell you the great Woody Allen stories. And you know what else? You know what was on my bucket list? There are very few things. Well, the Sopranos were, of course, I didn't get on that. But being on Seinfeld, those were two things I really wanted to do. Didn't get on those. But my big thing that I wanted more than anything after that was to be on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I taped one. You're doing it. You I did, did it. it. Yeah, I did one. It's it's not one episode. But now, how did that happen? Um, quirky passed. <laughs> I'm going to get so much crap from the, the mentally challenged now, association, whatever those people are called. Larry wanted you or Larry, you had to come in and audition no. against other people. Interesting that everybody auditions for the show and a friend of mine uh, who was one of the writers on the show this season said to Larry, you know who'd be great for this part? Bobby Slate. And Larry goes, yes. And they put me on. Without audition. Yes, yeah, why I know very, Larry. I, mean, very, I don't know him well, but I, I've known very, him over the years. And they put me on and... Um, Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Will you tell our audience the process of Curb Your Enthusiasm, how they do a scene versus the process of a normal show? Because it's fascinating. Okay, it is fascinating. And I'll tell you something. I, 
the reason I don't like to act is because I have a problem. I, and people go, it's not memorizing, but it is memorizing. Some people have these memories. You know, my friend Kevin Pollack is on Mrs. Maisel now. He has these long soliloquies and speeches and, oh my God. And I said, yeah, how do you do this? I talked to Bob Odenkirk. Was, I said, I'm breaking bad. I'm about to go slow. You go on and on and on. on, and on. I can never do this. You're so great. And he goes, I sit there all day in my pool or in my backyard. I go over and over and over. Oh, these guys are amazing. For me to learn two or three lines is impossible for me. It's impossible. So the great thing about Curb was they kind of ad-lib it all. And in a way, for I guess for some actors, that can be really hard. But when you get brilliant guys like Jeff Garland and Richard Lewis and Larry and Ted Danson and, and Susie Essman, I just having a great time. Before you're about to do a take, does it happen where somebody comes to you and whispers in your, yeah, say this to him, say well, that can, to him. I think just add this things. in here or whatever. I think a couple of the writers said, why don't you try this? You know, you do, you but they confidentially take you aside so the other person can't hear what you're about to say, uh, right? I don't remember if they said that or not to me because I only did a few scenes. Mm -hmm. A few, they were very funny, and I'm sure they do that. But the writers threw me a couple of ideas. Try this, and, uh, and they told me specifically what the scene was about before I went in, what it was about. But they said, "Don't come up with any lines. Just kind of go with the flow." So I had a few lines in my head, and I threw a couple of them out. We did it a bunch of times. How many times do you do each scene on Curb? Um, we didn't do it a lot, five or ten. And how many times out of the five or ten? are different like words coming out of your there mouth. There were a lot of different ones. And, and again, I only worked on it for a few days, but after doing it, it was such a joy to work with all those people and the director, producer Jeff Schaefer, they were all, and, and, and Carol Liefer and my friend John Hamer were the writers. It was such a great group of people that it was almost depressing to leave because that was the one show that in the last 10 years, I was talking to Susie Essman about it because she, she said the same thing that I said, that you know, auditioning for stuff and memorizing scenes and lines and you do a sitcom and a lot of people don't know this, but you know, um, I mean, you know this, but you know, when you go to a sitcom and you get the script on Monday and they tell you not to memorize it because by Tuesday it's changing, Wednesday is changing, Thursday is changing. And by the time you shoot in front of a live studio audience with the three camera shoot, the changing thing, I would drive, I've only done about a dozen, maybe half a dozen sitcoms, and it would drive me crazy. You know, I, I, I couldn't take it. And I realized that, you know, when you stop and you think about it, with all the commercials, the sitcoms were 20 minutes. And even if you're the star, what are you in it for 12, 15 minutes? But to me, it seemed like... And your scenes on Curb, when the director yells, cut, I bet the whole crew is holding in the laughter, and then they just laugh when they yell, cut, right? Um... I don't remember, I think a few times, but you know, again, they're so used to working with these people that they can't be laughing all the time. Are you the kind of person that of all your 10 takes, you instinctively know which one they're gonna use? No, I forget, no, I'm, I'm just trying to remember my next lines. All right, so we got comedians and cars, Curb, Curb you which did, I got, you that did. was on my bucket list. So you only have one thing on your bucket list yeah, left. But wait, wait, wait. But Is that the, true? The thing about Curb, which was depressing, was after I was done, go, like I said, this would have been the greatest show to be part of over the years because you don't have to sit there memorizing a script. You, you know, and, and every one of the, all those people on that show, Richard and Jeff and Larry and, and Susie, looked like they were just having a great time. And, they, and I think that shows, you know? When's the last time you did something for you? You self-produced something that you wrote and you believed in and you spent your own money and you shot it. Oh, never. Never. I've never believed in anything I've done. Never. I, um, I did a little cooking pilot with my daughter years ago because I like to cook. And I said to this producer, a friend of mine, 
He, he spent the money, not me. I said, look, this is not going to work. I know this isn't going to go. Because I like to cook. Not a great cook, not a chef, but I love to cook. And people would come to my house for dinner. And while I'm cooking, we're drinking wine, listening to music. My friends would say to me, oh my God, this is so funny. We should do a show with you and the interaction with you and your wife and your daughter. But the thing is, when you put that, it's like one of those Wild Kingdom shows. They're not going to sit around forever waiting for the muskrat to run out of the hole so the, so the cheetah can catch them. You know, they, I think they stage a lot of this shit. You know, all right, let, let the rat go. To, to, tell the puma to go get him. So what, what happened, I go, look, I don't want to do a cooking show. It's got to be intrinsically natural, okay? And I knew we couldn't listen to music. I knew they were going to come over and shoot, start shooting at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I'm not going to be drinking wine at 8 o'clock in the morning. I can't put on Sinatra or the blues because, you know, you, it's all copyright music. So right away, part of the joy of cooking. And I knew this was going to happen. I wake up my daughter who slept till 11 every morning who's going to be cranky. And we go to the grocery store. None of it was natural. Making the sauce. All right, can you make the sauce again? And, you know, they make it seem like it was all ad-libbed. And it's not. And it wasn't fun. And the show almost went. We almost had a show. But anyway, that was the last time. that. And it, was, it wasn't a show I really wanted to do anyway. I didn't want to do a cooking show or a food travel show. And the, it's all been done. The last thing that I would ever think of hearing out of your voice is I don't believe in anything I could ever create or do. I've never, well, you know what? I cre- I had some great ideas and I've pitched some great ideas. No, forget pitching. I'm talking about you writing, creating, directing, Nothing I really producing. want to do. I don't want to direct anything. You know what I want to do? I want don't to sit, you don't I want to sit behind the camera like this idiot and laugh and pretend like he's doing something. <laughs> he's and referring he, he to turns, my he wonderful... He turns the camera on, he goes, go, and then he goes, okay, we're done, and he shuts it off, he packs it up, and then he goes to get lunch. That's what I want. What he's doing is what I want to do, but I know it pays shit, right? He just called exactly. one of my producers, Wes, an idiot, uh, by the way, and Wes smiled. Well, why should he be? Wes why smiled like the guy you? at the comedy club with the Asian woman. <laughs> I'm going after everybody else, and I, I feel I've ignored him. <laughs> Thank you. He appreciates it. Oh, yeah, he does. You know? Because so what happens th- if I didn't pick on him, he'd go after, oh, you made fun of a retarded people and, and Chinese, <laughs> and you went after Barry's big nose. Well, how come he didn't talk to me? He would have been hurt. It's like Don Rickles. You know, he's in the front row. They expect to be picked on. I just want to let you know you're not being ignored. When you see somebody like Louis write, create, oh do his own show. Oh, amazing. Oh, I, I, I can't. When you see Larry write, create, I do can't. his own show, why wouldn't you want to do that? I can't do that. What do you mean you can't, can't do, do that? that. I, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm not that smart. I'm a great comic and an even better actor. Okay, I'll buy that. Even though it's bullshit, <laughs> I'll buy that. Okay, that's as far as we're going. I'm a good cook, good comic, amazing actor. Okay, and we've, that's really not right. But okay, I'll meet you on, that, on those points if that makes you happy. But I don't sit and create shit and write shit. Oh, my God. You know, I once wrote a few little animated things and... You know, my girlfriend's always saying, oh, you should go on and do this and edit it. And she wanted me to do this thing where I animate the skeletons and do a dead Bobby Slayton. That way nobody can make fun of you because you're already dead. And I go, you know what? I'm I, It's stupid. I, but I did pitch a lot of stuff and let somebody else do it. I've come close to having a lot of shows made that my creative input. That's, that's all I want to do. Somebody does a show. I show up. I put a little creative input. Use my, an animated show. Use my voice. But don't ask me to make up and write and produce. That's, I'd rather make my, my little artwork you see around here. You know, when you leave, I'm going to make a marinara sauce. I'm excited. My girlfriend's out of town. So tonight, I'm going to make a, a you know, nice garlicky clam sauce. I'm so excited about this. Maybe even crack open a bottle of wine three, four in the afternoon because I feel like I've done something today. Because I feel like we've I've actually, a lot of days I sit around and go, I haven't done anything in showbiz. 
even as the fringes of showbiz, this is like a big thing for me. That's how that's how bad my career is. When the Barry Cats, you know, uh, <laughs> what's this called again? Industry standard. Industry standard. When this is like a big thing for me, you know, things really suck. So this, no, it's a big thing. <laughs> All right, I want to go way, 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 way back. Oh my God! Take me back to where you were born. You grew up. Your family environment, the socioeconomic environment, oh, and what cares. was your first inspiration to get into this crazy, fucked okay. up business? Let me tell you something that I did do. That one creative thing, and I should go back and finish it. Is when Anthony Bourdain came out with that amazing book, Kitchen Confidential, about the see me underbelly and his experiences in the kitchens and travel and food, I said, I want to do that with comedy because I have some great stories. I have some really great stories. I think about when opening for bands and, uh, and having a fight with Journey and doing the gong show. And I traveled around the country with a robot, which I'll tell you about in a minute. I anyway, wrote these great, great... I, so I started writing a book and then I realized, you know what? I sent it to some publishers and you know what, these days you can't really get a book published if you don't have 14 million followers on Twitter and a big social media presence unless you publish it yourself. And nobody, can, you know, I kind of lost interest in the book. But um, the funny thing was the way, <laughs> but I was always a class clown. So going back to when I was a kid, you know, it's your typical stand-up comic, never great at sports, never great with the girls. I mean, you know, you know, did a lot of drugs. I mean, what I, town did you grow up in? I grew up outside of Scarsdale, New York, which was a beautiful, not the rich part of Scarsdale, but sort of the. I grew up in one of the greatest neighborhoods you could ever grow up with. It, it was. I was a New York Yankee fan, and it was literally a thirty-minute ride to Yankee Stadium, a forty-five-minute ride into New York City. Middle-class environment, upper, upper middle class. My yeah. neighbor, one of the best school systems in America, and you don't appreciate that when you're growing up, you know. And you had it wasn't small town America, but bottom of the hill, great department store, a great drugstore where you could steal baseball cards and get ice cream. The good humor man came around. We had a great baseball diamond. My neighbors had a pool. My next door neighbors belonged to a country club, so we didn't really have a lot of money, but it was a great neighborhood. Was anybody funny in your family? No, my father thought he was. I guess, you know, when I was a kid, you know, he would go to parties with a cap gun and sometimes act like an idiot with the fake teeth. So, so, so after high school, what was your next step? Oh, my God. I barely made it through high school. I was, I smoked so much pot. It was such, not a mess. I Did your parents know you smoked pot? Oh, yeah. You know, the funny thing is I can't touch this stuff now. I hate it. And... Um, I used to have conversations with Bill Martin, our friend, JJ's Christmas party. Bill, Bill's always been a big advocate of pot, and I smoked it till I was about 22, 23, and every once in a while, I try it now, makes me so uptight, so paranoid, I hate it so much. And I've tried every kind, this kind of relaxia makes me uptight. Try this kind, it'll put you to sleep, keeps me up all night, I've given up on pot. But when I was in high school, I couldn't go to a baseball game, a rock and roll concert, a Friday, Saturday night without pot, I would be scraping resin out of you know pipes and hash oil and whatever I could to get high. And me and my friend would take his brother's car, we'd be 15, drinking beer in the car, go to the neighborhood bar with fake ID. I'm amazed I'm still alive. What did you want to do back then? Did you go to college? No. I went to, I went to live with my grandmother in Florida for six months. Went to Broward Junior College. Okay. And never went to school. I, I, you know, I, I, that didn't work out. So what's the first inspiration to getting into comedy? 
You know, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of comedians. You've talked to many. That's my first comic. Interview. Yeah, I've talked to every comedian. Everybody's been married to a comedian. I, I got, told you, that's why finally, after five fucking years, he finally gets to me. Okay, you've talked to. I'm interviewing comics. Corky next okay. week. Well, yeah, leave Corky from alone. Life He's had enough. <laughs> okay, I know what I know what to stop. You obviously. I feel bad even saying the name Corky. I feel like I've said a bad word, but I'm not. That's his name. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, that, okay. So go on. It feels good to make fun of him. Okay. <laughs> I didn't anyway. make a lie for you. <laughs> Uh, even your producer's laughing. Okay. If I could turn the camera around for a minute. Okay. So the guy you, who you called in the idiot? Uh, no, leave him alone. Okay. <laughs> you know, what I was saying was that, um, um, what did you ask me? What was the question? Oh, okay. No, but you've talked to enough comedians where you know that a lot of them when they were younger, I always wanted to be a comic. You know, you know they would say it when I was in school and high school or whatever. I'd, I'd watch Jack Betty or, or Richard Pryor. Or you'd talk to the young black guys, Eddie Murphy or, you know, you know Robert Klein or whatever. And I always wanted to be a comic. It never crossed my mind to be a comic until... I moved to California. I was 20 years old. I always wanted to drive cross country. After seeing Easy Rider, when I was 14 or 15, maybe 1969, 68, 70, when, I, when that movie came out, Easy Rider, I was 14, 15 years old. And these guys were driving cross country, selling dope, and you know, and I go, I want to drive cross country. Not selling dope or on a motorcycle because I'm a Jew, but I want to go cross country. You know, I want to go to San Francisco because I love the Grateful Dead and the whole idea of the Haight-Ashbury, the Jefferson Airplane. I grew up, you know, 14, 15 years old, the psychedelic era, Timothy Leary. I started taking LSD when I was 15. Fought San Francisco, want to go to LA, want to go to Disneyland because I never went out to California. So I finally drove cross country when I was 20. I never thought about doing stand-up. Became a bike messenger downtown. How did you have money for a car? A friend of mine drove. I had $100 in my pocket from a job, from some crappy job that I had stock boy. And... So you guys are moving to California. Do you have a place to stay when you no, get there? No, my friend, well, he's got money. He, he's, you know, he probably had a couple of grand. He had the car. Turned out to be a psychopath, this guy, but I didn't know that till we were... By the time we hit Las Vegas, but yeah, you know, we drove cross country, went to the Grand Canyon, went to Vegas, and and I'll never forget this. And I'm not embellishing. We took LSD, and I'm driving from from wherever we were coming from into Las Vegas, and I was reading Fear and Loathing in the car. In Fear and Loathing, Las Vegas, here Hunter Thompson was talking about these fever dreams and LSD and how Vegas is hell and people are turning into monsters and rat bat spiders from Mars and we are driving into Vegas it's sunny outside in the desert and in the distance there's lightning and black clouds over Vegas and I, I'm not imagining this just because I was on acid but I'm on acid I'm reading this book and the whole thing I mean it was kind of weird and we got to Vegas it was fine it was no big deal LSD wore off it was nice the next day we moved to San Francisco and uh, went through LA went to Universal Studios so Robert Wagner filming uh, the uh, Takes a Thief or whatever the TV show we had. Um, and I go, wow, it's so cool. There's like actors. And so the Creature from the Black Lagoon Lake. And I want to be an, an actor someday. And I want, to work in, I want to work in a studio. And that was the end of that. And I went to San Francisco. And I'm telling jokes at a party. And somebody said, you should try stand-up comedy. That's what it crossed my mind when I was 21. I never did it before. And I went to this whole place, a holy city zoo. Stop here. Tell our audience about the historic... Holy City Zoo, how large it was, have you, and have you what been an incredible... You know, you know the history of that place, right? But our audience doesn't tell well, me. Well, it was before the punchline. I, I don't know if your comedy club was around back then. This is, this is 1975, 76. I'm 21 years old. And it was a teeny, 
80 seat room that wasn't it was i don't even think it was 80 i, I think it was 80. 50 I think right i think it was more like 50 60 and literally part of the 50 were bar stools, bar stools. where you came in right. where you had to look in right. the club right. with your neck crooked Right, to go to the bathroom, you had to walk almost almost across the stage. It was a teeny, teeny room. And it wasn't a comedy club. They did amateur night on Tuesday, professional night on Sunday, and the other nights were folk singers and whatever. It was a little coffee shop, a bar, you know, kind of that coffee shop mentality, folk singers. You couldn't have a band play there because the stage was too small. You know, so, so they did comedy. Comedy started taking off, and they would have it a few more nights. I went in there on a Sunday night. That was a professional night. And I went to watch the comics. And Do you remember who you saw? No, probably. I mean, the guys that were professionals back then, I don't know who I saw. It was Bill Rafferty. Michael Pritchard. Away. No, Pritchard, I don't think was doing it yet. I think I did before. It was a guy named Mark Miller who went on to become a comedy writer. It was Bob Sarlat, who's still around and went on to do Color for the Giants, done a lot of commercials. It was on Letterman's morning show. Yeah. And... Um, Bob Sarlat, and I, I don't remember who I saw, but I saw a few comics that weren't that good. I don't think I saw those guys because they were great. And I'm thinking, I could probably do this. And they were, I had a shortage of comics that night. And Tony DePaul, who ran the club, said, you want to go on? I said, no, 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 I'm not prepared yet. I, I want to come back for the open mic, the Tuesday, the, uh, the amateur night. So I went back to my bike messenger job, and I didn't come back two days later. I worked on a five-minute routine and came back the following Tuesday. And put together five minutes. Original material. Yes, all original material. I still have the tape somewhere, mm -hmm. which I should get rid of because it's like having kitty porn or women's clothes in your closet. <laughs> you die, people are going to find it. <laughs> I have no kitty porn in women's clothes, but I have this tape somewhere. I don't want anybody finding this tape. The long lost Bobby Slayton, like Prince, they'll re release it on, so on, on Blu ray and DVD. It was, anyway, it was so, that horrible. It was. Well, you know, considering I was 21 and considering I didn't have this template that every comic has now of how to do stand-up comedy, because now what makes it easy for comics and difficult, it, you know, it's a two-sided coin. What makes it very difficult for comics now is everything's been done. And if you start talking slow, or what do you try to be, Stephen Wright and Mitch Hedberg? What do you try to be, you know, and if you're kind of wacky, what do you, you know, you do props, you try to be Carrot Top and Gallagher, you, you start using the N-word and doing scatological humor, you try to be Eddie Murphy or Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle. So I think it's hard for a comic in many ways because everything's been done no matter what you do. But at the same time, you also see how it's done. You can watch comedy and see how it's done. So back then, the war, I mean, the guys you saw on TV, I'd never been to Vegas. I never saw an hour special. There was no Showtime or HBO. So what I would see was Robert Klein on Merv Griffin or... You know, I didn't even know who Jay Leno was. I, I, would, I wasn't a big comedy fan. I watched the Smothers Brothers, which had nothing to do with me. Richard Pryor, Bill Cosby, whoever, you know, you see the, the, the Ed Sullivan show. So I, I wouldn't see that many comics. So the comics I had nothing in common with. So I was trying to put together five minutes. And I put together five minutes, and you sign up. And you sign up, and, and I signed up. I was number two that night. And all of a sudden, he goes through number two, he goes through number three, he goes through number four, he doesn't call me. And he goes, the next comic, and I ran on stage. I grabbed the mic from Tony DePaul. So it's my turn. It's supposed to be number two. And I did my five minutes, and I did pretty good considering. I taped it. I listened to it. It would make me cringe. Now, I'd like to, I wish I could find the tape. I don't know where it is. How Tony, long before your first paid gig? Oh, my God. Um, that took a while. So I played the Holy City Zoo, 
And then the comedy boom started. All these comedy clubs started opening. Then there was the other cafe, and then the punchline opened up. The other cafe is where Paula Poundstone spent a lot of time working. She was a Boston girl, and you know she would open up for me, and Bobcat Goldthwait came from Boston, and Kevin Meany came from Boston. He opened up for me, and Jake Johansson opened up for me, and uh, a lot of comics, and I opened up. But when was your first paid gig? How far from? I think it was probably... John Fox, not the late comedian, but the promoter who started the San Francisco Comedy Competition, John Fox opened up the punchline, which was not even a club. It was backstage at the old Waldorf. Uh, Jeffrey Pollack, who was a promoter, who sold it to Bill Graham years later. So there was a rock club, and in the back was the dressing room. And it was a, 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 a British pub during the day, fishing ships place, with a pool table and a bar. And at night... John Fox started doing stand-up comedy. And there was a microphone taped to the ceiling, and it would fall down with the duct tape. And, you know, they used me as a house MC. I don't remember my first paid gig, but that's where I really learned how to do stand-up comedy because thanks to John, I became almost a house MC. They called the room the room that Bobby built, you know, because I worked three months out of the, three weeks out of the month, I was a house MC, opening up for, did for you, George Wallace. Did you quit your day job then? No, my day job... I'm trying to remember when I quit my day job. I was a, <laughs> I, I worked at a record store called Banana Records, which they fired me from because I'd make fun of people that came in. How are we buying this new Barbara Streisand crap? The new Stones album is out. I'd make fun of the gay people. And this is kind of the, <laughs> where the seeds were planted, I think. And I became a doorman at a famous club called The Boarding House. And um, I worked there a couple of times. And I don't remember my first paid gig. I do remember the David Johansson group who uh, David Johansson was, you know, Buster Poindexter and the New York Dolls. I love them. And they had Sandra Bernhardt opening because they're both William Morris acts. And I was a doorman. And I'd done a little bit of stand-up. And I was dying open up for David Johansson because I loved the New York Dolls and I loved David Johansson. And the first night I go in, Sandra Bernhardt doesn't do that well. And I always thought she was a good comic. And the next night I went into work and they said, Sandra Bernhardt either got fired by the band or she quit and went back to L.A. They said, you got to go on. And this was like the biggest thrill for me. I had to open up for the David Johansson group. And a packed house, a boarding house, pretty big. Uh, well, big for three, 400 people. That was a lot. And I ran back to my apartment, which was about 10 blocks away, and I had to get my props. I had a cap gun. I had a Pillsbury Doughboy. I had a giant fly taped into the inside of my jacket. I had a copy of the Leave it to Beaver TV Guide. And I'm trying to remember what my act was. You were a prop comic when you started. Well, it wasn't just... Well... I started out, and it wasn't just props, but it was like, it was almost like you have a wood-burning gas oven. You want to make pizza, but the gas is sort of supporting the wood. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a combination oven. So what I had was a few prop jokes. I had one about the, I, okay, it's hard to really go back and say, tell somebody to go back to Auschwitz and relive the, you know, the horror. Um, um, I had, the, uh, what was big at the time were test two babies. Test two babies just come out in the seventies, and I said I couldn't find a babysitter tonight. I had to bring my son, and he moved out of test tube. And he goes, "Oh, they brought out my son. I had to bring the twins. I had to bring out two test tubes tied together. This would kill." I had a cap gun, and I don't remember what I did with it. And that was seen from the fly. Help me, help me! It was like Robin Williams, but it was stupid. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary 
surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. I was in the right place at the right time when it came to stand-up. You know, in San Francisco, there's a comedy scene starting. There weren't that many people doing it. John Fox was nice enough to use me as a house MC at the punchline. I got to open up for, you know, all these great comics like Elaine Boozler and George Miller and Jerry Seinfeld, um, Larry Miller, um, whoever, Michael Keaton, Bruce Baum, Denny Johnston, a lot of, so I, I would get to see how people worked. Kim Adada, you know, I, I got to see the different styles of comics. You got to watch a lot of comics do an hour, how they did it every night, and then I got to do it. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.